Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say it so much. Please, in riot gear, we're trying to... I am ashamed to call myself a European. recognition of Guaido, elected gobshite, is an absolute embarrassment. No, you did use the word gobshite, so uh, I would re- reprimand you over that. Hello and welcome back to the first episode of I Foresee Trouble after the long summer break. Hard uh, to get going. <laughs> yeah. yeah so slowly getting back into things we're all back in brussels back in the office this week on the podcast we're gonna catch up on um what's going on in terms of the war the cost of living and the links to the sanctions there and then what's been going on the committees uh, different yeah updates. i mean it's a bit funny it's a bit different than the doll like we find the holidays are much much shorter here in the european parliament when we were in the doll the break was much longer but they do come back I suppose, in stages. So we're back two weeks now, sort of gradually building up. There's been a low level of committee meetings, but the place is hopping with people. Everybody's organising visits. There's so many people around. And what we see finding is there's a lot of meetings about, we say, where we're shadows on file, which means these are the legislative proposals which are before the parliament, which they divide out between the groups. Each group has a shadow on each file. And I don't know about you, Mick, but my week has been infested with shadows meetings on the various legislative files, which... I respect our listeners too much to bore them with the details, <laughs> on, quite frankly, you know. But they go from anti-money laundering to uh, political advertising being monitored to, you know, visa waivers for countries, yawn, you know. But anyway. <laughs> but I only, I only had one shadows meeting this week. Um, but I have a good few coming up, all right. Uh, I'm the shadow on four different environmental files, uh, which Adrian is doing a lot of the work on. And... Um, so we had one this week on nature restoration, which is actually a very big one and uh, will be very interesting. It was actually, I enjoyed the meeting um, and the, the, the shadow members from the different groups on it um, kind of kind of good, you know. They've, they've had, there's a good enough mix on it and um, uh, I think it should be very interesting. Yeah. Well, that makes yeah. a big difference when there's good people on it and there is a number of important environmental files coming up in... Strasbourg next week. I mean, forestation is a big one now, but obviously it's the talk of the summer. We're just back when all of the people who were away were in countries where the drought across Europe is having a, a major impact. And you'd be thinking, well, it is on the agenda in Strasbourg, but this should be the number one item. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's by a mile the biggest crisis uh, facing Europe, facing the world. And uh, I've heard a number of MEPs try to make out that the war in Ukraine is the biggest crisis on the planet, uh, but I'm sorry, but they're living in cuckoo land. Um, if we don't start taking the environmental crisis a bit more serious, uh, we're going to have uh, w- even worse summers than we've had in terms of shortage of water, uh, extreme heat, and there's going to be a massive... People are going to see a huge knock-on effect from it. I mean, just, just a couple of simple examples... Uh, the Rhine River uh, transport has gone through the roof. Transport costs 
because the Germans have always used the Rhine uh, for huge barges and they move an awful lot of produce on the Rhine. But it went so low that uh, it became almost impossible for many of the barges to travel. And uh, it was, they were actually having to use other forms of transport and the costs are going through the roof. People are talking about a food crisis because of the war and obviously directly linked as well to the EU sanctions, uh, which have been so self-defeating for the Europeans. But the weather has had a massive impact on uh, wheat production in France. The crop is going to be 20% lower Mm. than normal because of the drought. And uh, you can, I'd say... It won't be long before your bottle of wine is going to be costing a few bob more. The average uh, loss of crop across the whole of Italy this year is 40% for wine producers. 40%. Mm. Think about it. Mm. Mm. And then you have talk of in Spain um, producers of olives moving away to pistachios that the olive production, which is obviously key in a lot of the Mediterranean countries, has been hammered. We know from Italy with the Po uh, suffering and and drying up a lot that rice production, uh, which is very, very important all across northern Italy, has been absolutely walloped as well. And this is a, a staple. So these are kind of food staples which are being hammered. But I mean, everybody knows, no matter where you were, even in Ireland with the changes in the weather and the extremes. And in Belgium, the humidity was appalling. In parts of Europe, again, you know, we, we all know record temperatures never experienced before. But areas which would be normally temperate climates where people like to go on their holidays were actually unlivable in the summer. And the contrast between that now and the floods last year in Belgium and Germany, this is scary territory. But for me, the most scary thing is that in response to the war, they're turning back on coal production in Europe. So they're actually taking actions in the European Union, which not only is not going to tackle the drought, it's actually going to make it worse. Oh, yeah. There there are serious rollbacks Mm? on environmental ambition. Uh, because of the war. And they, it is plain to see that they're prioritising a US-NATO uh, war agenda in Ukraine at the expense of the environment. Mm. And that is, obviously, we can talk about it later, but also at the expense of a, a massive cost of living increase for most Europeans. But just uh, as your point about the rice is really interesting. And uh, most... Uh, people at home, for example, in Ireland would probably be shocked to hear that Italy grows rice. But Italy is the biggest rice producer in Europe. And it's, it's, but it's mostly it's risotto, which is a different uh, rice. It's more round. Uh, it's not long-grained. Um, but the Po Valley is the home of the most uh, intense uh, rice production in the whole of Europe. And the crop is... Mm-hmm at least 60% has been destroyed due to lack of water. Wow, that's huge. That's incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that you were just touching on um, is is the whole link between the sanctions and the price spirals that we're seeing now. I know you put out a video, um, Mick, a French video, um, that we put the English subtitles on. It was an economist talking about sanctions and kind of, yeah, and it was actually on on the the the, the number one um, radio station or TV station in in France, um, and um, this economist uh, who was is really well known and you know does a lot of punditry uh, in France, and he just said 
that the sanctions are not working, that they're self-defeating, and that we are punishing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, the video went wild. It did he, he broke it down in a really interesting way, though. Basically, he was talking about how we are buying less volume of oil from Russia, but through the sanctions, they've pushed up the price. The, the price of oil has gone way up. So and then when you're buying smaller volume, at still massive, like much higher prices. Yeah, the direct... Like, I mean, just for oil and gas alone this year, uh, Putin is going to take in their, the, the the latest figure I've seen was he was expected to get an extra two hundred and eighty-eight billion dollars mm-hmm. above what he got last year so for for less. They're absolutely like the sanctions cu- couldn't be work like they absolutely aren't working. No, no, I mean they're actually the making uh, they're filling. The, the Russian coffers at the moment, the yeah. sanctions. Are. They're having the, I mean, one of the, the re- figures I saw was that the energy sales, which the, the Russians are experiencing at the moment at the higher prices, is generating a current account surplus of 265 billion this year, the world's second largest after China. So Russia has never had as much money and reserves in the bank as they have now, thanks to the European sanctions. And thanks to the European sanctions, ordinary people around Europe are being told by their so-called EU leaders that we all have to make cuts, that we're going to have to be maybe rationing energy at the winter time. Now, how terrifying is that for older people or people sitting at home? We see stories about a rush on generators, that people are buying generators for their houses as backup. Like, this is like kind of war-term rationing. Like, where's the efforts for peace? Like, and at the same time, they're saying, oh, no, there's no point in talking about peace now. We've got to drum down, batten down the hatches. How is any of that helping anybody in Ukraine? It isn't, because sadly, the war is continuing. And all over the summer, every day, hundreds more Ukrainians were dying. Uh, And it's very, very obvious now. I think there was an announcement today. Blinken was sending another three billion in arms. They want to keep this going at the level it's going. And Ukrainians are suffering and Europeans are suffering. It's just... Do you, the European actions are blatantly increasing the violence in Ukraine. And there's, people should remember, in war, it's, it's mostly the less privileged that die and old people and, and women caught in houses that get, get bombed. This is just nonsense. But on the relation between uh, the war and the sanctions and uh, the oil and gas prices and all, there's there's a there's been some great commentary by a fellow called Ben Aris. It's Ben A R I S. He's he's a, a professor in Berlin. I know, and he's not remotely. Uh, he doesn't take sides in the war, right? Right. In fact, he'd be very critical of Putin. He would, as as we would, right? But uh, he was pointing out that attempts to cut Russia off from its oil export revenue have largely failed, as the friendly countries have blown holes in the sanctions to take advantage of deep discounts on the cost of a Russian barrel of oil, right? But. Uh, so Russia is making a killing, he says, uh, thanks to the abundant leaks in the sanctions regime. But uh, he says, uh, there's, is it by the summer, uh, at the initial stage of the war, there was a bit of a blip for Russia. But he says, by the summer, the markets had done their thing and exports and production recovered as Russia found new markets for its hydrocarbons. And I mean, it's just a case of it's all about the money when it comes to the markets. And p- there's plenty of people prepared to buy Russian gas. And what there's some countries in Europe doing, 
they're actually buying oil from there's even even the Chinese are selling Russian oil. China, India, Saudi Arabia, these are all selling Russian oil to European countries. I mean, you couldn't make it up, right? But uh, and there's a Finnish research group that Ben Aris refers to on a number of occasions, right? And they've reported that Russia's fossil fuel export prices were 60% higher than last year after the three months of the war. I mean, uh, just, and he says, and Russia's neighbour and leading trading partner, the EU, has been left to foot a large part of the bill. In the first half of 2022 alone, he said, the EU paid Russia 52 billion for oil, 24 billion for natural gas, and 5 billion for coal. And just to give you an idea of, of the impact on a country like Germany, Germany has already subsidised the cost of oil and gas in Germany to the tune of 95 billion already for this year alone. Now, I mean, just think about it. I mean, this is so self-defeating for Germany. It's just absolute nonsense. I think, and the rest of the world is looking on and going, what is wrong with the European Union? Are they absolutely mental? And I mean, I think it comes back to the point that we made at the start, that there's only about 40 countries globally imposing sanctions on Russia. If you read the press in Ireland, you think the whole world is sort of... But actually, the majority of countries with the majority of the world's populations aren't sanctioning Russia. And it's not because they support the war. Of course, they don't. But we were had a session last week of the INGA, the Foreign Interference Committee, in conjunction with um, uh, Foreign Affairs and all of that, where they were sort of trying to grapple with the idea of these other countries. What's wrong with them? Like, you know, they're being taken in by Russia. They're not on the same page as us in the war, which is just absolute rubbish. They Because they understand they've been at the receiving end of war uh, in those countries, but not by Russia, by the US in the main. Uh, and they kind of go, no, that's not the answer to this. It's just lunacy. And this is what we see. So they are the market now. For uh, So there's a new world order emerging out of this. And the old white world dominated by the US is on a loser here. But they're getting an almighty lease of life uh, in, in the NATO end from the foolishness of the European Union led by Ursula von der Leyen, who seems to be absolutely... Yeah, I mean, depth, like. the the uh, the sanctions have mainly been supported by the G seven countries, the Europeans, uh, the old all the old colonialists. You, know, you have the likes of obviously you have the Americans, you have Canada, and their friends in the east. You have Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. But it's a real small white club that are actually supporting the sanctions. So most of the world has refused to go to that space. They're fucking well used to all kinds of colonial wars in their own countries anyway, and they haven't forgotten it. And there's plenty of wars going on even in Africa today. There's a terrible war going on in Yemen. Uh, there's millions starving in Afghanistan. It's not like this is the only war on the planet. Mm. Uh, but uh, another, you, you were talking about a video, you made another video um, uh, Kira, and, and we did a tweet on the German foreign minister, um, Baerbach, right? Uh, she actually came out and said that she doesn't care what the German voters think or about the rising cost of living being such a problem. She says she will stand by Ukraine no matter what. This is the German foreign minister. She's a Green. The Greens in Germany mm. have been shocking. 
They're good on the environment, but they are mm. atrocious on mm. foreign policy. You would think that they were part of a NATO think tank. They have been so uh, pro-war. But they're, they're probably the, the most pro-war element, aside from the Baltic states and, and Poland. Mm. Uh, and it, this is shocking to see happening in Germany, a country that has embraced peace ever since uh, the terrible atrocities that they committed in the Second World War. Germany more or less said, never, never again do we want to have anything to do with war. And now Germany is going to become the third largest spender in the world on military next mm. year. The third largest in the world after the Americans and China. Germany, the country that has been advocating for peace for all these years, it's mm. shocking. Mm. And that actually brings me around to another another point, Claire, you were making about uh, developments around the war and relations, the this thing of banning visas for Well, Russian it's been a big topic, yeah. That was one of the ones in the summer. Yeah. And like Mick was mentioning, the Baltics are mad, like, and the, the Poland and that want to ban any Russian from ever coming into uh, Europe. Actually, we had some of our own MEPs in Ireland banging the drum on that score as well, which is incredibly disrespectful to all of the Irish people who have Russian spouses and family members and wanting to visit grannies and granddads <laughs> and all the rest and how that in any way uh, engenders any sort of, <laughs> I don't know, support for Ukraine by banning ordinary Russians for coming Euro to Europe. I mean, it's the maddest thing ever. Um, but yeah, I mean, they say, look, everything has changed now. So we have to get new friends. So while in the same breath as they were discussing, and obviously in the end, they didn't ban Russians from coming to Europe, but they uh, interfered with an arrangement, which makes it slightly easier for them to get visas. But at the same time as they're doing that, they're in the process now of granting a full visa waiver to people from Kuwait and Qatar. And we've no problem with we are actually in favour of free travel for everyone. We don't normally support visas at all. But there are nearly 200 countries in the world, less than, you know, one third of them get visa free travel to the EU. And now they are talking about doing it with our sort of new friends in Qatar, which will probably happen around the time of the World Cup. So they're saying we can't because of Russia and we, we have to, we can't give visas to Russia because of the war. Mm -hmm. But Qatar are involved in a war in Yemen, slaughtering people there. These are autocratic, Oh, they're, they're not like somebody called them an underdeveloped democracy. No, they're not. These are <laughs> naked authoritarian regimes. I mean, Qatar had its first election last year. Now, it wasn't now for the Dáil or, or a chamber of deputies, but it was for an advisory council. They got a chance to vote for two thirds of the advisory council, but the advisory council can't do anything. The ruling family decides everything anyway. There's no political parties allowed at all in Qatar. Um, there's no judicial independence. Obviously, there's the appalling situation with the uh, Kafala sponsorship program with migrant workers, where we've seen thousands of workers killed in the construction of the infrastructure around the World Cup, which will be happening in the next couple of uh, months. So Qatar has flagrantly failed to investigate those, denied the work workers' families any compensation, not to mention all of the other, you know, discrimination against women. Women operate under the guardianship system. They have to get permission from a male guardian to do anything. They can't even be guardians of their own children. So even if your husband dies 
and you're the mother of a child, you can't make the decisions for that child. And if you haven't got a male relevant relative, the state will do it for you. So this is the type of country now involved in a different war but equally destructive, if not worse, given the starvation of Yemenis, which Qatar is involved in. But the European Union is negotiating a visa-free travel arrangement with them while they're stopping them for Russia. Now, yeah. what does that say to the rest of the world about Europe's soft power and values? And like, this, this so-called kind stuff. of, as you were saying, the so-called kind of idea of democracy in the free world versus authoritarianism. Yeah. It really oh, yeah. makes a rubbish of that as... Yeah, I mean, and, and the portrayal of the war as a battle between democracy and authoritarianism is a 100% lie. Mm-hmm. It's a 100% lie. And anyone that partakes in it is being totally dishonest. But on the issue of uh, restricting the travel of the Russians, right, this kind of started with, with Zelensky in Ukraine. Oh, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, ban them from everywhere. Don't let them into Europe. Uh, they're, uh, they're all... They're all uh, involved in the war. So what, what Zelensky and what Europe, uh, many elements in Europe are saying, uh, and the Irish politicians who've gone down this line, what they're actually saying is that every Russian is a war criminal. Every Russian is responsible for the war. Now, when America killed over a million civilians in Iraq, did we ever think of saying that every American was a war criminal? Because we didn't. Because, and it wouldn't have been true. Because most Americans wouldn't have even approved of the war. Right? And I'm sure there's lots of people in Russia that don't approve of the war. And uh, 99% of the po- Russian population uh, have had absolutely nothing to do with uh, starting the war. And yet, now, we're tarring them all as if we're calling them all war criminals, right? So, and that we, we're saying that they shouldn't be allowed to travel. So everybody, every Russian should be punished. I mean, please, why was this? America has dropped more bombs in the uh, last 50 years than the rest of the world put together. They have killed millions. They've displaced tens of millions. Why didn't we have the same approach to them? I mean, it just, there's no logic, whatever. And only a few days ago, Macron uh, on French TV said, what's happened to us, he said, we're allowing Eastern European states to dictate policy now, he said. Who would have thought that this could happen, he said. He said it out straight. And of course, the Baltic states and Poland went nuts with France, right? Because he was saying the obvious. Hmm. He, he, he realises that France is facing huge rise in living costs because mm-hmm. of a war that only suits a US-NATO agenda, which Zelensky has been prepared to support. And uh, no one is, is denying the fact that the Russians work 100% wrong to invade Ukraine. But it is blatantly obvious that there was no effort made to stop the war beforehand or since it started. And... It is laughable that so many people across Europe, and especially in the European Parliament, they cannot talk about the war or mention the war without saying the unprovoked war. Now, why are why do they have to say unprovoked? It's I tell you why because it actually was provoked. That's why they're saying it. Mm-hmm. Because you wouldn't say it if it was 
other way. The, the emphasis on it is is mad. But I mean, it doesn't excuse the fact that Russia are 100% wrong. It's illegal. It's a criminal act. It's a war crime to invade another sovereign country and start a war. Uh, and uh, Russia... We've, I mean, we've, we've, as we've said many times, despite the, the media describing us as Putin puppets, right? We have no time for Putin, a right-wing neoliberal nationalist, right? That uh, is, doesn't behave in the best interests of the Russian people uh, most of the time. We have no respect for him. But I mean, we were just trying. Let's call a spade a spade. This is some stupid war that we have been prepared to promote at, at our own expense, and we're doing bugger all to try and stop it. And you're right, the lunatics have taken over the asylum in terms of these sort of, in some ways, the pariahs of the European Union. And again, this is not about ordinary Polish people or ordinary people in the Baltics who, just like ordinary people in Ireland, give out about their government. I'm sure they're giving out about them as well. But their government have done some blatantly anti-Russian racist actions which are not in the best interests of their own citizens. And it is interesting that France and Schultz and Germany have been trying to maybe steer a bit more of a middle ground. But the sad part is, is that those fundamentalist, more reactionary elements are the ones leading the charge. And Ireland has positioned itself more in their camp than in the camp of the middle ground trying to sort out a resolution. And we saw that very graphically um, in the summer, even around some of the the uh, reaction to Sabrina Higgins's letter calling for peace, for example, which was just mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. Um, but you could see how Ireland could have played a role in that dynamic in Europe as some uh, country in the middle ground coming from previously former colonised country, but very much in the west of Europe could have made that appeal and that bridge to the east. But things are changing, like Mick mentioned France, but the big massive demonstrations in France last week uh, against the rises in the cost of living, huge demonstrations in the Czech Republic, uh, again against the cost of living linked to the war and calling for a more neutral position in the war. And this is where the pressure is going to come on. I think we'll begin to see that in Ireland as well, because people just can't keep going, paying with their livelihoods for this lunacy Mm -hmm. that's not even having any impact and I mean they're allowing Ireland saying come on in from Ukraine Ukraine why aren't they trying to stop the war so the people in Ukraine can live in their homes without them being flipping bombed like you know I mean but going back to the point Kira that you mentioned about about the war being won between authoritarianism and democracy the the manner in which Sabrina Higgins' letter was dealt with Mm. was authoritarian by the Irish media and many Irish politicians. It was authoritarian. And dissent is not being tolerated. You, you, you're, you, they, you dare not challenge the mainstream narrative. You dare not challenge the line that suits US imperialism. You dare not. And Sabina Higgins, uh, fair play to her, she deserves a lot of credit, uh, for doing what she did, and uh, it brought into the public domain uh, more clearly that we have a serious problem now with tolerating uh, opinions not our own. Mm. And I thought it was really manipulative as well because when her letter came out, and like they would, like us, have been condemned Russian invasion, but said, "Where's the call for peace?" and she put that out there, but then they suddenly did this big article. Oh, the Russian ambassador agrees with Sabrina Higgins, which is obviously, you know, enough to say, oh, my God, she's an embarrassment and disgrace. Like us. <laughs> we didn't actually say that. But anyway, it yes. was implied. But the sinister thing about that was 
quite obviously, the Irish Times went and asked the Russian ambassador. Mm-hmm. They didn't ask the American ambassador or the German ambassador or the French ambassador. They just asked the Russian ambassador. And the next day, they did the same thing with me. I get a thing from the Irish Times saying, oh, we're doing a commentary on, on politicians' reaction to Sabrina Higgins's letter. Would you have a comment? And I said, you fair play to her and all the rest of the thing. And then the next thing was Claire Daly and the <laughs> Russian ambassador agreed. They hadn't asked other people. And this was trying to sort of tar her by our bad association. Yeah, but this yeah, is yeah. disgusting and it is authoritarianism. I mean, I know Mick was raging. He didn't make the Ukrainian, the, the pro-Russian propagandist international list, <laughs> of which I was the only Irish member. But this is sinister. This is a list drawn up by a Ukrainian government department under the... Uh, uh, headed by Zelensky himself where about maybe 80 people internationally were put on this list as pro-Russian propagandists and my crime for being honest was two things I did. The first thing I said was was that uh, sanctions hurt ordinary people. Hello demonstrably true Uh, and second thing that this was a US NATO proxy war. Again demonstrably true but you know let's have a discussion about Mm -hmm. it if you don't think that's Mm -hmm. the case. But can you imagine if the Chinese government did up a list of people that they didn't, they felt was were propagandists? The outcry that would be having here, but the authoritarianism of the Ukrainian government is really frightening. We don't have time to deal with it today, but they've brought in incredibly uh, reactionary workers, um, clawback on workers' rights in the country, shutting down opposition, um, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, Scary. And these mm. lists, like that girl who, uh, the daughter of the the Russian associate of, of Putin, who was um, murdered in the car bomb incident in Moscow, was on those lists as well. And the list was alt- altered afterwards, saying kind of eliminated. So this is where these Sinister. lists are going. Where's the condemnation of that? Nowhere. Mm. And so, you, yeah, no, that's... It, it's quite scary, definitely, to see your mm. name on that kind of international list of, um, yeah, potentially... Well, particularly when borders are open and arms are being given out on street corners to lunatics with fundamentalist sort of ideas and that. And, you know, when you give out arms like that and you don't track them, they have a a propensity to come back and bite you. And they certainly those arms are going to be appearing for many years to come on the black market. And we know some serious military hardware is available for sale on the dark web as it is, which can Mm -hmm. do huge damage. Did you see the report? I think it was CBS in America. I mean, one of the mainstream American TV channels. They did some research uh, in Ukraine on the amount of what was happening to all the guns that the Europeans and the Americans were putting into the place. And they actually found that uh, something or between 30 and 40 percent of the guns and uh, military hardware, only between 30 and 40 was reaching uh, the front, mm. uh, that a lot of it was being sold on the black market. And they were put under such pressure that they had to withdraw the programme. This mm. is a mainstream American TV channel uh, that has been working with the Pentagon and the CIA all its life. Mm. And they bring out a programme like this, just pointing out the obvious, that there's a problem with, the suppl- with, with what's happening with an awful lot of weapons going into Ukraine. And they had to retract it okay. under pressure. Scary times. Mm. And just before we finish up, I know that you had some other things you wanted to touch on. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, we're, we're, we've uh, we're probably not having a lot of time left, but yeah. uh, obviously um, the Taiwan Straits mm-hmm. um, and the Pelosi Nancy Pelosi's visit to China kind of happened while we uh, we were off, 
And um, so we had a discussion on it last week uh, at Foreign Affairs Committee. Her, and her visit to sorry? Taiwan, rather, right? Sorry? Her visit to Taiwan. Her visit to Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. Her visit to Taiwan. And um, the uh, the EU uh, head of delegation to China and Taiwan uh, was up before the parliament. And you know what now? He, he was a pretty impressive fellow. Mm. I actually liked him. Um, a decent bit of stuff, I'd say. Uh, very capable, right? And... He was ready for the the anti-China brigade straight away. And he, when he was making his presentation, he says, look what he said. We, The European Union favours the one-China policy. Now he says, and that's not ambiguous, he says. That's not uh, one-China, it's either Taiwan or uh, mainland China. It's mainland China, the People's Republic of China, he said. is We, we have stuck to that policy and we will not be changing no matter what pressure is put mm-hmm. on us he said mm-hmm. right uh, he said that's our position and that will remain our position and he said in terms of the the the, uh, the Taiwan Strait and uh, the visit of Nancy Pelosi uh, to Taiwan I want to reiterate he said that the EU's top priority in the region is peace and stability. And anything that upsets that, he said, uh, will be frowned upon. So well, I got my chance to ask some questions. I said, no, I said, OK. I said, uh, thanks for your presentation. But you said, you said that the EU's top priority was peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits. I said, but then t- explain this to me, I said. How come the EU or not one G7 country criticised Nancy Pelosi's reckless visit to Taiwan when the Chinese had made it so clear that this was not good for peace, this was not good for stability in the region, that this was a reckless act. Nancy Pelosi went ahead with it anyway. Uh, She was on her own little ego trip. And she didn't even have the support of Biden, as it turned Mm -hmm. out, right? Crazy stuff, right? But not one... G7 country criticised her. The EU didn't criticise her. But the EU and all the G7 mm. came out and criticised China's so-called overreaction to her visit. I said, explain that to me, I said. Why, if, you're looking, if you're really genuinely interested in peace and security in the region, uh, I said, uh, why didn't you just criticise her visit as well as criticise the Chinese reaction? Mm-hmm. And he, he, he didn't really answer me clearly. Uh, but it was really obvious that um, we need to be straighter in our talking. And I said to them then, I said, uh, tell me honestly, I said, does the EU have the potential to run an independent policy with China and with the problems with Taiwan and all other aspects to do with China? I said, they're our biggest trading partner. We'd be stupid if we fall now with them. I said, uh, can we pursue an independent policy or are we going to behave like a pawn uh, to the US empire as we're doing in Ukraine? And he said, look what he said, we have a good relationship with America and we work with uh, like-minded partners of which America is one of them. And uh, But he says, and we will be working with America on China as well. But he said, we, are well, we will still have our own independent policy. Uh, because I had put it to him that we don't have a serious issue with China. America does. 
they're not China are not a threat to the security of the people of America, but they're a threat to America's financial supremacy, which has reigned now for so many years, because the Chinese will probably uh, become the largest financial power in the world within 15 years. Uh, but anyway, he he was he was pretty good and impressive. Now, in fairness to him, and he was adamant that. Uh, the EU would not be uh, led by the nose by America on all issues. It's nice mm-hmm. to know that not everybody is completely crazy, but it does, it gives a good insight into the different, I suppose, forces at play in the EU as well. Yeah, yeah mm. no, definitely. Um, well, I think that's probably all we have time for this week. I know there was some other committee stuff. But yeah, but anyway, listen, we're, we're better not bore the people yeah. any longer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, until next week in Strasbourg. Oh God, yes, yeah, Strasbourg. We'll be, we, next week we've the annual state of the na- of the union. The absolute and state of it. And, the, the, and the absolute state, state of yeah. Alkira is it's right. Worse by year, <laughs> oh so. my God, this is yeah. going to be interesting. Von der Leyen, by God. Yeah. I mean, how disappointing has Von der Leyen and Burrell as our, as our as our kind of our leaders on foreign policy, right? Oh my God, where would you find a pair like them? Save it for next week. Oh, stop. <laughs> Adios. Bye, bye, bye. Adios. Good luck, good luck. <laughs>